I don't want to use the word role models, but but we have a power to, to change the image a little bit. And so I think that that falls on our shoulders, and I, I try to take that pretty uh, seriously. And, and I'm proud of what my kids see me do. They've seen my stand-up, and they seem to like it. So that's good. Hello, and welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. Today, my guest is Iranian-American comedian and actor Maz Jabrani. You might recognize him as Faz Hamadani Farooq al-Shahrani from CBS's Superior Donuts, or maybe from his 2017 Netflix stand-up special, Immigrant. As one of the few Iranian-American comics out there, and as a father of two young children, Maz feels a special responsibility not to feed into stereotypes. His memoir is called, I'm Not a Terrorist, But I've Played One on TV. That's a good place to start. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein. I hope you enjoy the show. You have a lot of things going on, and I feel like, strangely, it's triangulated to be extremely relevant for us from your work on Superior Donuts, your work in last year's uh, Immigrant, the Netflix special, and the world in terms of being an Iranian-American in this weirdo political climate. And then as a dad of two, how you are negotiating, you know, raising kids in this environment and also how you balance setting an example for your kids in the world and making a living. I was reading in your autobiography, you talked about turning down villainous roles. You're not going to play the terrorist anymore. Did having kids play into that at all, that you don't want to set that image up of being a Persian-American or Iranian-American? Uh, that that came a lot earlier before the kids. That came when I, uh, early in my career, I would say just a few years in. When I first started, my agents would send me out on auditions. And it was interesting because one of the first auditions I actually had was for the show uh, Walker, Texas Ranger, which was Chuck Norris. And so, as you can imagine, it was a bad guy. It was a villain. It was a terrorist of like European descent or something. So I went and I auditioned for that. Then the second audition I got was for a security guard in the TV show. There was a show called Chicago Hope, security guard in a, in a hospital. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. Once in a while, I play a bad guy. Once in a while, I'll play a security guard. That's cool. Um, but then slowly it started looking like it was a lot more terrorist auditions than any more cop or security guard auditions. And so... I started seeing that those were the types of parts that were coming my way, and uh, I did a Chuck Norris movie of the week, not that Walker, Texas Ranger, but another thing he had. I, I played a terrorist in that, and um, and doing it, I just felt bad. I felt off. It was First of all, it was a Chuck Norris movie, so it wasn't anything artistically um, fulfilling. Yeah, you're right that everyone who works on the Chuck Norris movie is somehow related to Chuck Norris. Yes, that was, that was very much the case in that... Just to explain uh, what was happening with it, it was, a, it was a Chuck Norris movie where this was before September 11th. At the time, bin Laden was public enemy number one, and he, they had not attacked the World Trade Center yet, but, but he was on the most wanted list. And so Chuck Norris's screenwriters, whoever they are, had written a movie of the week for CBS where there's a bin Laden-type character who has a couple of guys that he sent to America to blow up a building in Chicago. And I played the physicist who was putting the bomb together who was going to you know, help blow up that building in Chicago. At least you were well-educated. 
Yes, I was a well-educated bomb uh, <laughs> blow-upper. Yeah. Even auditioning for that at that point, it felt goofy. It felt like selling out. The reason that I convinced myself that I should do it was at the time I had a day job, I was working as an assistant in an advertising agency. And I was just looking for a way to get out of that day job. And I thought to myself, if I can put together enough TV gigs or movie gigs, then maybe I can quit this day job and really go 100% on to my acting and my comedy. So that's really how I convinced myself. And then I also said to myself, you know what I'm going to do is, even though it's a Chuck Norris movie of the week, I'm going to bring some integrity to this character. I'm going to show through my acting why this guy has so much vindictiveness towards America. Why does he want to destroy the U.S.? And you know, as an actor, uh, a lot of times you're taught to do a biography for your character. What happened to your character before the movie started? What's his story? And so you're supposed to fill that in yourself just as an exercise. So in doing that exercise, I said, well, this character, he's an Afghan whose family was killed at the hands of some American bombs years ago. Now, logically speaking, if you know the history, given the timeline of all this, this guy would have probably been a kid in the early 80s in Afghanistan, and that's when the Russians were in Afghanistan. So really, if anything, he should be in Moscow blowing up a building. But I kind of looked past that. You fudged your backstory a little. But, you know, maybe Chuck Norris would have been forgiving, right? Absolutely. When you sat down and explained this backstory to him in your uh, table read. First of all, there was no table read and there was no explaining (laughs) anything to Chuck. In the movie, it was funny because in this movie of the week, Chuck plays a professor. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that should have been like, okay, come on, I can't do this. But I thought to myself, and actually what happened was by reading that, he was playing a professor teaching at some university and he's talking about the Middle East. He's a professor in Middle Eastern politics or something. And one of the students in the class raises his hand and says something along the lines of, hey, Professor Norris, or whatever his name was. Um, it's probably Professor Norris. Exactly. Shouldn't we, <laughs> why don't we just bomb them all and get rid of them? They're a bunch of animals or whatever. And then Professor Norris goes, now, now, Thomas, they're not all bad. There's some good. And we need to, you know, get the bad guys, but we can't just be dropping bombs. And when I read that, I go, ooh, there's a little bit of nuance in this Chuck Norris movie of the week. Perhaps Chuck is coming around to see the world and, in my way. So I thought, you know what, maybe I can go and be a part of this and actually do this character with some integrity. So I flew from Los Angeles down to Dallas where they were filming it, and I went in for my wardrobe fitting, and the lady goes, here's your shirt, here's your pants, and here's your turban. Mm. And I go, wait a minute. I go, I'm sorry, Miss Wardrobe Lady. I go, Afghans in America don't wear turbans. If I were a Taliban in the mountains, maybe... If I were an Indian Sikh in America, sure. But Afghans in America don't wear turbans. I go, especially an Afghan in America who's trying to blow up a building is not going to be walking around in a turban. She said, well, you know, the producers wanted you to wear the turban. I said, listen, let the producers know I've done my research. I know the Muslims in America and how they look. And this guy would look like a normal guy. Maybe, maybe if you want, he could button up his top button on his shirt. Maybe. But other than that, I said, this turban is ridiculous. She goes, okay, I'll tell them. And then the next day I go to my trailer there's my shirt, there's my pants, and then there's a thing that looks like a scarf. And I was like, oh, well, okay, I'll wear a scarf. It's also professorial, you know. Very professorial, exactly. This is a, this is a tip of the hat to Professor uh, Norris. So, so she goes, no, that's not a scarf, that's the turban. You just got to wrap it back up. And I was like, oh, come mm. on. And 
And she goes, no, really. She goes, listen, they, they want the turban. And I put on the turban, and I went on set, and we're blocking the scene. And the director is Chuck Norris's son, Eric Norris. I uh, was able to catch him for a minute in between blocking. I said, hey, Eric, let me ask you a question. I go, I really think that it's pretty silly that my character is wearing a turban. And he, and he goes, you know what? I agree with you. I didn't want the turban. But my uncle, I believe his name was Aaron Norris, who's a producer, he goes, he wanted the turban. So I was quickly able to assess in my mind that the uncle was probably an older school uh, Norris. He probably the Norris of the old branch. The o- Norris of the old branch. He Norris of the old. Yes, he he. I think uh, was able to equate the turban to bad guy. He figured our audience will see the turban. No, that's the bad guy. That'll help get that point across. Whereas Eric Norris is from the progressive wing of the Norris family. Exactly, where he knows bad guys will blend in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> I wore the turban. I felt like an idiot. And that was really where it, the seeds started of me saying no to those auditions. And early in your career, it's hard to say no because you think you're supposed to take everything. Also, because I had a day job, I still wanted to get out of it. I still thought I should take everything. But I came back, I talked to my agents, I said, listen, guys, this, I just felt really bad playing this part and I don't want to do this again. And, and what was interesting was from the time we filmed this in early 2001, then September 11th happened. I was really worried because people were going around shooting Indian Sikhs who had turbans on just because they had turbans. And so there was a lot of stupidity going on in America at the time, kind of like now. So I actually wrote a letter to Chuck Norris and I believe to Les Moonves, the head of CBS at the time, and I said, uh, listen, guys, I really hope that you don't put this movie out because people are shooting people mistakenly, and I would hate for someone to see the movie and then think that the actors who played the bad guys, if they saw us out in the streets, think we're the real deal and then come after us. And Chuck Norris had had actually, a little bit after September 11th, he'd written some sort of op-ed piece where he just said, you know, I really want to get this show on air. I want to get this movie on air because in this movie, the the terrorists get what they deserve, and we really show them. Yeah, you're appealing to the wrong party there. I know, I know. And it was funny because they decided to run with the film. They totally ignored me, um, and I watched it. I was nervous. I was like, oh, my God, I can't go to the coffee shop tomorrow because someone's going to shoot me. As I'm watching the movie, I swear, as every minute went by, I just started realizing how bad the movie was. It was just the worst movie ever. Like Because Chuck played the professorial type, there was a young guy who was now the ass kicker guy. And I swear, as the movie went on, you started rooting against the ass kicker. It was done so poorly. Like they yeah. were so bland and so bad that it's at a certain point in the movie, I was like, someone should shoot me not for being a terrorist in, in this movie, just for doing this movie, just for being in this movie. <laughs> you know, so I really wanted to get out of that world. And, and so I told my agents and they said, okay, we totally support you. It feels very frustrating and the you want to participate in the industry and there's positions and jobs open, but they're so circumscribed by kind of a distilled version of public fear. Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of like I used to do a joke where I said, when you get into this business, they find out you're Middle Eastern and they go, oh, you're Middle Eastern. Great. Can you say, I will kill you in the name of Allah? And then right. you go, and you go, I could, but what if I played this do- the doctor in this movie? They go, oh, that's great. Yeah, then you can hijack the hospital. So it's like, <laughs> no matter what, you're going to be hijacking something. The Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. Every kid's got an imagination all their own. Whether they're racing monster trucks, playing teacher, or dreaming of setting foot on Mars... 
Even the wildest imaginations are hungry for more. Feed your kid's appetite for adventure with Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. With perfectly crunchy breadsticks and creamy cheese, it's a crunchable, dippable, enjoy however you wantable snack that's always a favorite. Plus, it's made to go anywhere their imagination takes them. Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. Snack like you. And now back to the show. Here's what I've been pointing out to people is that, unfortunately, I, I always say it, you know, you can sit on the sidelines and complain until you're blue in the face. So whether you're Arab or Iranian or Pakistani or Muslim or whatever you are, you can sit there and go, look at how they portray us, look at how they portray us. Well, the way to counter that is to start writing and producing and finding funding for your projects and counter those things. I mean, a great example of that is the big sick that Kumail Nanjani did. Yeah. Very straight, very, you know, it's a Pakistani guy and, and it's a great story and and uh, and there you have it. Or, or, or even looking at Aziz Ansari, you know, another one. Well, in both of those, obviously their Asian descent plays into the storyline, but in a way that feels like it's from the inside out, not from the outside in. Absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the importance is that they are the ones telling the story. And so that's what, I mean, in my experience with Middle Easterners and people from that part of the world, first of all, 100% of them have not been terrorists. I mean, I've never, in all honesty, never in my life have I ever met a terrorist. If I were to write a story, I'd want to write a story of the Middle Eastern businessman, the Middle Eastern lawyer, the you know the Iranian right. real estate investor, which is what you actually play on Superior Donuts. Yeah, I play an Iraqi real estate uh, investor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like so close, so close yet so far. I know. My manager called me up. He goes, "Listen, there's a pilot this year that they're uh, doing for CBS, and there's a Middle Eastern character in it named Maz." I said, yeah, I mean, come on, this is ridiculous. Because if you're going to do a Middle Eastern characters, usually they name them Ali or Muhammad or Amir or something, not Maz. Maz is right. not a very common Middle Eastern name. They obviously took my name. When we were doing the pilot, I said to them, guys, you have the name Maz, and I'm doing it, and I'm Iranian, so why don't you just make them an Iranian-American as opposed to an Iraqi-American? And they said that they wanted to have him come from a war-torn country. And I said, well... Iran was in a seven or eight year war with Iraq in the early 80s. Right. And then they said, well, unfortunately, a lot of Americans don't really know about that. And right. I said, okay, I said, that's a good point. But maybe an argument for better education. Yeah, exactly. And they settled on keeping him Iraqi American. And uh, I said, just, I said, if that's the case, you just got to change his name. And I thought they would come back with a name like Muhammad and they could call me Mo. But they came back with the name Foz, which I'd never heard in my <laughs> life before. You have this aperture of what the public can tolerate in terms of subtlety. And then because entertainment is entertainment, you have to appeal to that. You're kind of, I don't want to say at the mercy, but in some way at the mercy of what people will accept from you, the level of complexity. You know, I'm always a little uh, wary of executives saying things along the lines of the public isn't ready for this. There's been times when I've sold a couple of TV shows based on my stand-up comedy where I felt that probably one of the things that went into decision-making of the shows not going into the pilot stage or into the series stage, there was at some point someone saying, well, I'm not sure if this is going to appeal necessarily to a wider audience. I disagree with that because I do stand up all over the country. And when I do stand up and I make a reference to something that might seem esoteric, you realize how much we have in common. I mean, that's one of the reasons why when I first started, when I would talk about my parents, I would say, 
my Iranian parents were like this and like that growing up, and this is this was experience of being an Iranian in America. But then I quickly started saying this was the experience of being an immigrant in America. A lot of us, if we have immigrant backgrounds, we have similar experiences. If we didn't have firsthand experience in immigrant backgrounds, we at least had friends or people around us who had that immigrant background. In your special, the Netflix special, the first like 10 minutes <laughs> is an enjoyable kind of roll call of your audience. And you have people from around the world, a lot of Iranians, a lot of, you have one Chinese lady named Stephanie. Yeah. A white guy named Ed. Yeah. There was this level of nuance that you have in immigrant where you're, you make all these distinctions in communities, which I think is part of what comedy is you were talking about protesting at LAX the immigrant band and like how minorities protest or people of color protest versus like the white guys so you're kind of dividing up the world in ways that it's a very subtle parsing I think of allegiances and not to get like weirdly academic but like intersectionality yeah absolutely I mean listen it's uh I've had the benefit of seeing both sides and I'm just as guilty as anyone from either side when I make assumptions about the other side. So for example, when it comes to being an immigrant and Trump, I assume that 99.9% of immigrants would be offended by and opposed to Trump. But I came to learn quickly that there's a lot of immigrants, even Iranians and others who might have been affected by the travel ban, who support Trump. And right. so it's shocking to me, but I go, oh, wow, yeah, there's that. Or like you said, being someone who lives in America and we're talking about gender issues and Caitlyn Jenner and, and sex changes and what have you, we can speak at a very open level and not feel any sort of disgust at that subject. And yet I did that bit at one point in front of a Persian audience that was, it was at a synagogue, so it was a Persian Jewish audience, so they're going to be even more conservative. But when I brought up Caitlyn Jenner, some lady in the audience goes, disgusting. And I'm going, what? And I was shocked that she even had the gall to express herself like that. And then, then I thought, okay, so she's a conservative Persian Jewish lady. All right. I, that's to be expected. You, for better or worse, probably better, are a very famous Iranian-American, I think in a culture that there's not that many Iranian-Americans who talk about being Iranian-American as much. Although maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not. No, listening. I think you're right. You're pretty right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you think about your public persona? How do you think about your stand-up? How do you think about being an image for other, not only Iranian-Americans, but people of color, but as a dad, as someone who's a role model? How Tell me about that process in your mind or how you weigh that. As a creative person, I try to get away as much as I can from believing myself as a role model. I just want to do things that interest me. I want to do things that make me laugh. Now, within there, there is a radar in my mind of, oh, that's a little bit selling out. That's kind of going in the wrong direction that I wanted to go in. So for example, let's take the character on, on Superior Donuts, where I play an Iraqi American immigrant. One of the issues we had on that was, does he have an accent or not? I argued that he should have an accent because he's someone who came over after the Iraq war. And so he's been here recently or, you know, within the past 10, 15 years. So he would have oh, you got your backstory up. <clears throat> exactly. I got my backstory up. And so with that, on the one hand, as an actor, I personally am ready to play a part that's closer to myself, at least with, with the accent. Like I'd, I'd, I'd love to play a part. The next part that I play, I'd love it to be accentless. 
That said, I also sit there and I go, well, this character requires an accent. So we did the accent. And then the way I look at it, if you were to talk about role model and portrayal of Middle Easterners or Arabs or what have you, one could look at my character and say, you know, he is this greedy businessman who's trying to buy the donut shop. And so once again, the Arab American is portrayed as a economic terrorist. Yeah, economic terrorist as the villain in this. But I, I counter and I go, you know, every week that this runs, they give me a lot of very inappropriate things to say. I'm kind of like the the Danny DeVito character from Taxi or the real Perlman character from Cheers. Uh, so whenever this runs on Twitter, quite often I see people saying, oh, I love that line that you said. Like they're laughing. And I sit there and I go, oh, great. They're laughing at lines delivered by an Arab American and it's not a terrorist thing. So I go in a way, in a very subliminal way, it's making middle America who's watching this laugh and go, oh, this this character, as much as some of the lines are a little to the extreme, as much as he's kind of the, the bad guy uh, sometimes. He's not a bad guy in a way that is explicitly tied to being Iraqi. And, and also he's not a bad guy that is, there's never been a, a pitch for, oh, he comes into the donut shop and he takes it hostage. He's right. just this guy. So that, so that hopefully people that are laughing, they go, oh, wow, these guys have a sense of humor. Oh, wow, these guys make me laugh. So I feel like in a way that character is a step in the right direction. Again, I don't want to use the word role models, but but we have a power to, to change the image a little bit. And so I think right. that that falls on our shoulders, and I, I try to take that pretty uh, seriously. And, and, um, and yeah, I feel I'm, I'm proud of what my kids see me do. They've seen my stand-up, and they seem to like it. So that's good. <laughs> Rich, getting laughs from your kid from dad jokes is difficult anyways. Yeah. Your character is Iraqi in um, Superior Donuts. Do you have a separate Iraqi accent versus a Farsi <laughs> Iranian accent? Good one, good one. I'm not specific enough to have actually found an Iraqi person who would then give me training on an Iraqi accent. I just, whenever I do Arabic accent, and I think a lot of Arabs get upset at it, but it's the best I can do. I just speed it up a little bit and I do kind of this like Middle Eastern accent that talks like this. And, you know, the, although in the show, actually, I've started to make it less. And my wife noticed, she goes, did you lose your accent? I was like, I don't know. Just just watch the show. <laughs> but Iranians are, they talk like this. Iranian is a lot slower like this. The Iranian, they talk, they take the word and they elongate the word a lot and they talk like that. And Arabic is a lot more like this. They talk faster like this. They almost... It's almost like you pronounce every every little uh, letter. I always say it's Arabic sounds like you're doing cocaine. You talk very fast, you're on coke. <laughs> and uh, Persian sounds like you are on the heroin. You're just uh, slowing down like that. That's a good uh, dialect mnemonic. Exactly. Farsi, opiate. Yes. Arabic, upper. Exactly. Okay. There you go. And a kind of more serious note about raising kids. So you're, your wife is Indian, Indian-American? Yes. You are Iranian-American. And your kids are, what did you call it in your act, uh, colored up? Colored up. I think I said they're all colored up. <laughs> Do you feel more hopeful or less hopeful about raising them in America? There's a couple of things I think that are, that's going on. I think number one is as we have more interracial kids, uh, our neighbor's kid, the father is African-American, mother's white. Our kids are half and half. I think the more we mix our races I think that it becomes harder to hate the other because your background comes from those other groups. So I'm hopeful for our kids. It's amazing how sensitive they are now to a lot of these, even even language. I mean, I was, 
at the house one time and I was talking about the neighbors and I said something along the lines of his dad's black and his mother's white. And then I, and then my little six year old daughter, her mouth just dropped and she stared at my wife and, and, and I go, well, what's wrong? What did I say? And then my six year old goes, daddy, you're not supposed to say black. You're supposed to say African-American. I was like, Ooh, geez. Okay. So I think they're more and more sensitive to these things. And so I am hopeful for the future. I also feel that with the internet, people just get exposed to a lot of other stuff. Now, at the same time, we've seen the negative side of the internet and how people get on social media and they cuss each other out. And Are your kids allowed on social media? Not on social media. They, you know, they'll go on YouTube and watch silly little videos that I don't understand at all. <laughs> like unboxing. Yeah, unboxing and stuff like that. And I'm just like, oh my God, this can't be good for the brain. And then I think, well, you know, I used to sit, my parents used to sit me in front of a TV for hours and hours. Watch Dallas. I watched, I saw, I saw The Exorcist when I was a kid. I saw that on TV. <laughs> One of the jokes I do now is that the reason kids are more exhausting today than we were when we were kids is because as parents, we actually have to spend time with our kids. You know, back in the day, if there was a father who played catch with his son, then that was an exceptional dad. You're like, oh, wow, look at that. What a great father. He goes out there and plays catch with his son. Now, if you don't play catch with your son, you might get child services called on you. I mean, it's you like- You get shamed. You get shamed, you know? Like when your daughter wanted to do a tea party, you didn't join the tea party? How dare you? Right. You know? Your dad wasn't like that, though. You write in your book that your dad was a wealthy man of mysterious origin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My dad was a very, he was a very gregarious human being. He reminded me of Vito Corleone in The Godfather. He was <laughs> a man who'd made his money um, in Iran. He owned an electric company. He had made a lot of money through that. He had a lot of friends in high places. He, he had friends that were generals and mayors and police chiefs. And, and he was the guy that if you ever wanted to get something done, you'd go to him, he'd take care of it for you. So if you said, for example, in Iran, military service was mandatory. And so if you wanted your son not to be in the military, but maybe you couldn't afford to pay the fee to get him out of it, my father would either pay it for you or he would just, he took care of a lot of people. And I was, that was before the revolution. Before the revolution. And I would hear all these stories and I thought to myself, maybe my dad's just exaggerating. And then when he passed away, I would run into people. I ran into a guy, I was doing a show in Dubai. This man in his like, whatever, 60s or something at the time came up to me, he goes, your last name's Jobrani. Are you Hosro Jobrani's son? And I was like, yes. And he goes, your father saved my life. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, you know, back in the day, he goes, we'd go to these spas and we'd be hanging out in the steam room. And, you know, that's where people, men would go to talk politics and sports and what have you. And he goes, we're there. And I knew him from the spa. And I, and I was telling him how just getting married and I needed, a, I needed to buy a place. And your father at the time owned a lot of property. So he told me to meet him at a certain location, which was one of his buildings. We go there. My father goes, you know, pick a unit in this building and just move in and pay me when you can. And he goes, he was so generous. And I go, okay, I, didn't, I never knew he did that. And he goes, yeah, he was doing that kind of stuff all the time. And he goes, what happened was we moved in. And he goes, eventually through time, I was able to pay your father back. But he goes, the more important thing was if I had not been able to get that place at that time, um, that was the unit that we were able to sell to get the, enough money to l flee the country when the revolution happened. He goes, we, I wouldn't have had the money. So he traced that all back to my dad. And I was like, oh, wow, 
You kind of write about by the time your dad was older and had settled in the States, I guess towards the end of his life, although correct me if I'm wrong, he didn't have that economic power anymore. Like he wasn't like a big mocker that he was back in Iran when you were a child. What was it like to see your dad and what was it like after he died to see that he had been that powerful when, you know, you didn't really experience that here? He was just a big guy. And so... I always say, like, my mom used to actually hit us. My mom would get upset and come after us with hangers and, and like, beat us as kids. Oh, I and thought that was a joke in the book. No, it was real, man. She used to hit us. It was accepted. It was ex- it was like a spanking. It wasn't like she was taking an iron and burning our arms. It was whatever. She's napping, and we're sitting there making a mess or whatever, making noise. And she'd be like, you, and she'd start chasing us. She would do that. She'd pull our ears. I mean, my mom, like, now my mom is really calmed down. Like, she's super sweet. But- Back then, it's kind of like my wife. I see my wife spends a lot of time with the kids, and she loses her mind sometimes. And I totally understand. So my mom would do the same with us. And my dad never hit us, but he was this big guy, and he just had this deep voice. And so if we were misbehaving, all he had to do was yell your name really loud. He'd be like, Mazior! And then you'd just be like, eh! you just whimper away. <laughs> So, yeah, he was very intimidating, but at the same time, a very loving person. It's interesting because we came to America with a lot of money. He was able to get a lot of his money out. So when we first, my first foray into America, I was six years old. It was late 78. There was protests in the streets of Iran. And I think a lot of Iranians thought that the Shah would squash the protests and that we could go back. So my father was on business in New York. He was staying at the Plaza Hotel in a suite at the Plaza Hotel. And he sent for my mom to bring my sister and I to stay with him over our winter break, two weeks. And we even left my baby brother back in Iran. I always say we came for two weeks and we stayed for 40 years. My f- first experience with America was staying in a, in, a, in a suite at the Plaza Hotel across the street from FAO Schwartz, the biggest toy store in the world. And I'm going, wow, America's a great place. But eventually what happened was my father lost most of his money in bad real estate investments because he bought a bunch of properties. When we moved to California, bought a bunch of properties. And in the early 80s, when the Reagan recession hit, he was left with those properties at high interest rates. So he started bleeding money. Towards the, I would say, early 90s, he went back to Iran because at that point, Iran opened up to people that had fled and said, come back, because a lot of people had fled and left money behind. So they said, come back. And so my father went back to Iran to try and do stuff with the properties he had in Iran. Uh, that he'd left behind. And when he went back, they said, well, you haven't been here for 10, 12 years, so you owe all of these back taxes. So if you want to do any business, you got to first pay us. And also, uh, until you pay us, you're not allowed to leave the country. So he was stuck. How old were you? I was probably late teens, early 20s. I was at UC Berkeley at the time. It was this quagmire for my father because on the one hand, he had the potential to make some money again and be the lion that he'd always been, which was this businessman. At the same time, his hands were tied and he couldn't come back to America. The last several years of his life, he sort of grew accustomed back to that lifestyle in Iran, which was a very, it's a much slower lifestyle. He came to America a couple times for different medical reasons. It was hard to see the man who'd been such a lion really lose that. It was hard as a son to see that. At the same time, I felt it was also empowering to be there to help take care of him. So that was yeah. that was a good feeling. Uh, I think in 2005 or so, he came to America as well for another health thing. Seeing this man who 
had been so vivacious suddenly have trouble walking. And at the end of his life, we had him in a, in a nursing facility and we would go visit him in the day and we'd go have lunch with him and, and he would be walking with a cane and then he just wanted to go back to his, the nursing facility and get his meds for the day. He passed away at the age of 76 and that was in 2009. It's hard as a son to see that and experience. At the same time, it was a cautionary tale. My father throughout his life had been a big drinker. He'd really gone hard in his life. He also, like I said, he helped a lot of people financially, but never really planned for his retirement. And so with that in mind, I am someone who tries to, as much as I can, put away money for retirement, put away money for my kids' education. I don't know if you ever read Candide, Voltaire's Candide in college, but it's all about- College. I read it last week. Last week. There you go. (laughs) But it's all about these people in a palace and how- they, it gets raided, and then these people that were living a noble life then end up out in the world. You realize that in life, no matter how you plan, I mean, look, I could put all this money away as much as I want. If the stock market crashes, there goes the money. Yeah. I mean, I struggle with that too, but I think just because it's not a sure thing doesn't mean you don't act in a virtuous way. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that you need to, you know, my father, one thing he used to say that I liked, he said, if you learn from other people's mistakes, then you're a lot further ahead. And so he goes, He goes. I'm 70 years old, but I've lived 700 years. He really experienced a lot. I mean, he did everything. He traveled the world. He, like I said, had friends in high places. He helped people. He did a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff. I need to take his experience and learn from it. That's what we can do. And as, and as sad as it is to see when your parents get old and sick, it's something that many of us have to deal with. You just step up and you take care of it. When you have issues happen, it's your day-to-day. You, you, you're so in it, you're dealing with it. So every morning you're up, you're going to the nursing facility, then you're back with the kids, then the next day you're back to the nursing facility, then you're at work, then you're here. And you don't give yourself time to decompress and process it. I would say that recently, you know, this past year, I actually had a big tragedy happen. My sister passed away from breast cancer. She was one of the closest people to me in my life. And I'm sorry. Yeah. And again, it's, you know, I was so go, 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 go. And I've learned that I need to give myself time to reflect upon it. So I went and saw a grievance counselor and now I'm going to go see a therapist. And part of it is just to talk and to, and to say, you know, like you just said, how does this stuff affect us? Let's, let's reflect on it for a minute. And then I think the key is then to see if you can take those emotions process them, and then find ways to honor those people. Um, like I said, in a way, learning from my father's mistakes is, is kind of honoring him as well because yeah. you know I'm, I'm passing on, hopefully, better things to my children. It does occur to me, having watched your stand-up, is there ever a negotiation between you and your wife or you and your mom or maybe even you and your kids about, hey, is this material I can use in my act? Is this something that you feel comfortable with? Or is it that you, as a comedian, as the creative person, everything you touch becomes sort of yours? There's not a negotiation before, so I'll do bits, and there, but there have been times where they have brought stuff up. My wife, early on, when we first started dating, I used to do a joke about boyfriend-girlfriend stuff in general. It wasn't about her at all. It wasn't even inspired by her. And she goes, that bit, people could look at it as if you're talking about me it wasn't that I stopped doing the bit because it really, again, was very, it was a very silly bit. It killed. It killed. It was a good bit. What are you talking about? So when my sister passed away, I was trying to find some material that 
honored her, but also helped deal with that passing. And so one night my mom was at the show and I did a couple of those jokes and my mom didn't like them. And, and she said, you know, that I think that's kind of a bad taste. And I, and I kind of reflected on it. And I said, you know, the honest truth is the jokes weren't really that funny. So I was like, if I really want to honor my sister, there's definitely deeper ways to do it. So I saw eye to eye with her on that. Right. Uh, when my kids are in the audience, I try as much as I can. If I'm saying something, like, for example, I'll do a lot of material about, like, you know, the kids are exhausting. Oh, my God, they're breaking my balls or whatever, whatever, whatever. I try to emphasize to them, guys, because even in the, in the act, I'll say, you know, we love them. I love my kids, but this is how exhausted I am because of them. It's a... Very treacherous line to navigate, I feel. Even as a writer myself, I write about having kids and my relationship with them. And I feel so, you know, they don't have a say really over what I write or not write, what I expose about them or not expose about them. And it's my job to do that. And that's what pays for everyone to survive. Absolutely. And you got to be true to your voice. And so the only thing you can do is if you know that they're going to read it or you know that they're going to see it, you just go out of your way to give them a nod and go, listen, This I might be saying that I'm exhausted by you guys, but just know that I would never trade that for anything in the world. I love you guys, and this is just me being a human being who gets tired. The same way you guys maybe love to play on the trampoline, but at a certain point you get exhausted by it. The same way you love your mom and your dad, but if we tell you to clean your room— you roll your eyes, you're a little frustrated by us. Or alternatively, I'm just not teaching my kids how to read. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Maz, thank you for chatting with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Joshua. I appreciate it. Okay, I'll talk to you later. All right, buddy. Take care. Well, that's it for this season of the Fatherly Podcast. This season was executive produced by Sandy Smallins, engineered by Dave Savage, our theme music was by Kyle Forster with a little help from Augie here in Stein. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein, and I'll see you next time when we're all a little older and wiser, or at least older. Before I go, hey, Achilles, you got a good joke to go out on? Um, what do robots claws eat? Nuts. <laughs>